when uh, when we lived in Vincennes, Indiana, um, prior in, prior to uh, moving here to Eureka, which is uh, longer and longer ago all the time, but but uh, when we lived in Vincennes, our, our our church there was involved in a uh, a ministry called Angel Food Ministries and. Uh, the purpose of, of that ministry was was really to provide um, affordable food uh, for anybody who wanted to purchase it, and, and they did this by purchasing food in bulk and then uh, distributing it through a network of, of churches and volunteers. Um, so how it would work is is Angel Food would uh, would send a food list to the churches involved, a, a list for the upcoming month, and then the the churches would uh, take that that list, that menu, and you know publicize that. They would take orders for for boxes of assorted food. Um, at our church in Vincennes, it, it wasn't just church people that. Um, that could buy boxes, but but we leveraged that ministry to to reach out into the community and um, and reach uh, out to people in that way. And then what would happen is we would take those orders, send them off once a month. Then um, a handful of guys from the church would pile into the church van and drive to the the drop off location early on a Saturday morning. Um, there may or may not have been donut stops along the way. Just saying. Um, so then we would show up, and then there'd be other churches that show up with a group as well, and together we would all unload the semi-trailer, we would divide up the food, put our portion into uh, the church van, and usually another truck or two, and then take it back to the church where we had another group of volunteers from our church ready to distribute that food to, uh, to those who had ordered it. It really was a, it was a good ministry, it was a wonderful way to to meet physical needs um, in a, in a cost-effective way. It was a good way to, uh, to build relationships with people who maybe otherwise wouldn't have interacted with our church. Um, well, then just before we left Vincennes to, to move here to Eureka, Angel Food was shut down without much indication as to why and just kind of stopped all of a sudden. And turns out, as, as the story would go on to unfold, the founders of the ministry, Joe and Linda Wingo, um, along with their, uh, their son Andy, were found guilty of mishandling millions of dollars in the form of, uh, of theft, fraud, kickbacks, even cover-ups. They bought cars, uh, they hit a down payment on a jet, I heard. Um, they paid millions of dollars in bonus wages to family members. Um, they, they sought to cover up documents when they were being federally investigated. Um, not, not a good situation. Uh, Joe, the father, and Andy, the son, were actually sentenced to seven years in prison. They had to pay back millions of dollars. Um, the reason, I, the reason I bring this up this morning is, is you know, in this three-week sermon series on giving, that's a story that, that hits close to home in my heart because of the connection our church had with, with that ministry, but, but it also shows the reason why it's so important to be wise in our giving, to be wise in, in how and in where we give our finances. There is no shortage of nonprofits in our country. Um, I, the number I came across this past week was 1.5 million nonprofits registered just in the United States. That's not worldwide, that's just here in the U.S. 1.5 million nonprofits. And we shouldn't assume 
that every one of them is handling money in the proper manner, as the story I shared just showed. It, it, is, it is imperative that before we give money to an organization to help those in need, we have, we have confidence that nothing shady is going on behind the scenes. And the same, I think, could be said for the situation in Corinth that we are looking at. We've come to chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians. These are the two chapters where Paul talks about this collection that he is taking up for the uh, impoverished believers in Jerusalem. So if you remember last week at the beginning of chapter 8, Paul, Paul wrote to the church about this. He, he, he talked about, um, he encouraged the church to be generous in their giving in that first part of chapter 8. Um, he, he reminded them of, of the foundational example of giving, which was Jesus Christ himself, how he gave himself upon the cross. He became poor that in his poverty we might become rich, as Paul said. You know, that example was to, to drive the giving of the church in Corinth. And then Paul also at the beginning of chapter 8 talked about uh, the example of the Macedonian churches. He said, here's this group of churches in Macedonia. They themselves um, have come upon hardship. They themselves experienced poverty. But yet, th th there's been a wealth of generosity that has flowed out from them. And so Paul used that example as, as an encouragement and as a challenge for the, for the believers in Corinth. But again, as, as my opening story shows, there is a need to have certain safeguards in place when undertaking an endeavor of this kind, even what Paul is doing here. And so for the rest of chapter 8, Paul talked about the safeguards that were in place for this specific offering that was being taken up. He wanted to show the church that they can indeed give with confidence toward this effort. So I would encourage you to follow along with me. We'll, we'll just, uh, we'll read straight through the passage this morning and go back through and talk about it. Uh, this is 2 Corinthians chapter 8, starting in verse 16. But thanks be to God, who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but himself, being very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. With him we are sending the brother, who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And with them we are sending our brother, whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit, and as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. So what, what we see in, in this passage here is that there are three different safeguards that Paul had put in place to ensure that things would be handled correctly. The taking up of this offering, the distributing of that offering, 
The first thing we see is that, that uh, individuals were chosen to gather and to administer the gift who had proven themselves in the past. And, and we're only given the names of one of them, but all three of these we are told specifically have proven themselves, that they are trustworthy. So in, in verses 16 and 17, we, we do see Titus, the one who is named. Titus was one of these three individuals. We know from previous chapters that, that Titus had made a trip to Corinth, at least one trip already. He had taken that, you know, that difficult letter from Paul to the church. He had taken the response from the church back to Paul. He'd given Paul that update that Paul was so encouraged about back in chapter 7. So, so not only is Titus deeply trusted by Paul himself, but, but you know, Paul says he has the same earnest care for the believers that Paul does. So the Corinthians would know that. They would know that Titus cares for them. They've interacted with Titus already. Titus has proven himself to, to both Paul and to the believers in Corinth. So we see that there. It, it makes him, I guess, a natural selection to, to participate in, in the administrative part of this offering. You go on to verses 18 and 19, and we're, we're told about the first of the two unnamed brothers. Uh, in effect, I think, because these two brothers aren't named, what is more important than their name is, is their credibility, is the fact that they have proven themselves. Whoever this first one is, he, he's famous among the churches for his preaching of the gospel. So maybe Paul didn't even need to name him because the Corinthians already knew who this was going to be. And not only that, uh, it seems that the Macedonian churches appointed him to be a part of this group. Uh, it's an individual that, again, maybe he was known by Corinth, maybe not, but it sure seems like the Macedonian churches knew who he was. And so as a result, the believers can be confident in this individual as well. And then you get the third uh, individual mentioned in verses 22, um, and again in 23, Paul talks about all three of them. Again, he's unnamed, but he's been tested. He's, he's been found to be earnest. So, so what we have is three individuals tasked with collecting the money, but they're not just three randomly selected individuals. These are three trustworthy individuals. Paul knows that they're trustworthy. The churches seem to know that they are trustworthy as well. They've proven themselves. So that's the first safeguard that we can see Paul, Paul talks about here. The second is that, that these three individuals were approved by many. They, they weren't just approved by Paul. Remember, Paul is the one kind of organizing this effort. He's encouraging the Corinthian church to be involved. It probably wouldn't have looked quite right if, if Paul had placed three of his own personal traveling companions in charge of this. Like, oh yeah, I've got three guys that'll, they'll, they'll be okay. You know, I, you know, just trust me, my three guys. Titus, he knew quite well. But these other two individuals who aren't named don't seem to have that, that uh, traveling status with Paul. They're, they're not traveling around with Paul. These are two other individuals who, are, who are, have proven themselves but have been chosen. So they've been chosen by Paul and the churches. It's a, it's a collaborative effort putting this group of three together. So again, being approved by many provides kind of another layer of safety within this whole thing. 
And then finally, the, the, the third safeguard is, uh, you know, you've got their, their proven past, they're approved by many, and there's a group of them. There, there's more than just one individual. It's not just one person who has a proven past that is approved by many. It's, in this instance, three of them. One person acting on their own is not only in a, a much greater place of temptation, but, but they would have an easier time of things keeping everything hidden if they gave in to that temptation. So, so having a, a group of individuals provides that accountability for one another. Uh, it provides the opportunity for others to be strong in the face of temptation when, when one might be weak. So there's accountability there in that group. So they're proven, they're, um, they're chosen by many, and then they're, they're able to hold each other accountable by being in a group. So what we see as Paul wrote to the church is that he's, he's proving to them that the proper safeguards are in place. They, they can have confidence in this offering that's being collected. Now, all three of those things that I just mentioned probably seem pretty common sense, right? And, and if we're honest, the, the, this maybe isn't the most captivating passage of Scripture we've ever read in our lives, where Paul just talks about the behind-the-scenes stuff that's in place. I don't think many of these verses are found on greeting cards, typically, right? They're just not those kind of verses. But it is important to Paul that he make the situation clear to the church in Corinth so that they can be assured that things are being done properly. The, the first century believers in Corinth, they lived in a time where Satan was actively working. Satan was, was working to tempt people to sin, just as he does today. Satan was just as much at work then as he is today. The, the temptation to be dishonest in the handling of money was a temptation then, just as it is today. They lived in a fallen world. We live in that fallen world as well. So there is, there is the need to exercise wisdom in the giving, in the distributing of, of the gifts that were collected. And, and so I guess on that note, you know, we, we shouldn't think that, that we at EBC are immune from this type of thing. You know, I, I know that what Paul is, is discussing here is, it has to do with, uh, with giving directly to the poor in this passage. But I thought it might be, it might be a worthwhile and, and, and just a good exercise of transparency to kind of let you know the safeguards that we have in place here at EBC so that, so that there can be confidence among us as well, just like Paul was seeking to instill that confidence in the believers there. So for starters, our, our you know, weekly offerings that, that we just uh, took up, our weekly offering is not counted by just one person. Um, it's always counted by more than one person. Those, those counters have been selected by the elders. Um, those counters sign off, um, all of them together, on, on uh, the amount that, um, that was counted. They verify that it is correct, the correct amount. Um, once it's counted, the offering is then deposited into the bank by the only person in the church who knows, uh, who has a record of who gives what. There's only one person in the church that has that record. Our, our offering envelopes are designed in such a way that those counting don't know who has given what. Um, our elders don't have access to those records. I don't have 
access to those records. Uh, You can be confident how you are treated here at EBC is irrespective of the amount that you give. You know, you hear stories sometimes about, or maybe I hear these stories about a pastor. I can't I can't call that person out because they give a lot to the church. I mean, that man, you run into trouble when you start getting into that kind of a situation. There's only one person in the church who, who knows how much any of us gives. Um, two, if you count yourself, you know how much you give. And so there is that accountability there then, that that one person isn't able to falsify records because you would know, right, if, if it doesn't match the amount that you actually gave. Then regard the handling of church finances once it, you know, once it leaves the building, goes into the bank. Our, our treasurer, our church secretary, both are involved in the payment of bills, the, the reimbursement of expenses. They can check up on each other in that way. Um, Pastor Tim and I have quite limited access. Um, we can't, can't sign checks. We don't have access to cash. Uh, we've got a credit card, but, but again, those statements are are able to be seen by the church secretary and the church treasurer at any point. And so, you know, all that being said, I guess my goal is probably the same as what Paul's is here. I want you to know that the same safeguards Paul saw as necessary in chapter 8, we see as necessary as a church body as well. Um, And again, this isn't super exciting stuff. I don't think we're ready to stand up and worship because of the, you know, the, it's just one of those things, but, but it's important, right? It's things that need to be in place. These safeguards make things more difficult at times, if we're honest. You know, I, I don't think everyone who is, who is called or stopped by the church asking for help believes me when I tell them I can't write a check or that I don't have cash to give them. I, I think they're just think I'm just trying to blow them off? Like, no, that's true. Like, I, I don't, I can't do that. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's, it, it's important that we do things the right way when it comes to handling finances at EBC. And we're going to talk about why that's important in just a minute. But it is, it is so important that we do that. And, and, and it's not just for us. This is, this is important for any organization any organization, especially the ones to which you or I give, we want them, we want to know that they are doing things the right way. And I know we don't have the time to look in depth on each and every organization that we give to or that asks us to give. The great thing is that there are other organizations that do a lot of that work for us. Um, maybe the biggest one in Christian circles is the, the ECFA the Evangelical uh, Council for Financial Accountability, they do that kind of work, checking out organizations. There's a rigorous application process that, that you have to go through to get that kind of seal of approval from the ECFA. So it doesn't mean that an ECFA-sealed organization is never going to run into issues. Those things can happen, but, but we can have a lot of confidence when we see that type of seal on an organization that we're involved with. And even if they're not Christian ones, there's, there's things like Charity Navigator and Council for Nonprofits. There are people out there that do this type of work that, that kind of look behind the scenes, if you will, to make sure that things are, are happen, happening properly. You know, as I said, there, there's, there's a lot of extra work that has to go into all of that. You know, a lot of extra work making sure the safeguards are in place, 
extra work that the organizations go through to fill out uh, you know, those applications. You know, even here at EBC, it, it would be simpler if we just had one person that counts and records and deposits and tracks the finances. We'd, we'd need less volunteers in that case. Um, but as Paul, I think, so clearly shows us in this passage, it's vital that we, have, that we as Christians have the proper protocols in place. And he gives us the reasons for it. And, 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 and I want to read those two verses again, but, but before we do, it's not just for organizations. What we're going to read about the principles behind the protocols, it's not just for organizations. This is for us as individuals as well. This is, this, is, this is for us. These ought to apply in how I volunteer at church. These ought to apply to, to how I do my taxes. They ought to apply to, to, how I, uh, to my integrity at work in financial matters. So, so it's not just organizational stuff that we, that we will see here. This is personal as well. So verses 20 and 21, I want to read those again. Th this is why. This is why all this stuff is put in place. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. So Paul really, I think there gives us three reasons for all those protocols. First, he says that, you know, when, when things are set up in that way, they're not open to blame not open to blame. If, if an accusation was to be made against Paul, and if he was doing everything by himself, he wouldn't really have a defense against that accusation. He would, he would be open to blame at that point. Uh, there's people in this world that, that spread lies in an attempt to destroy others. Um, it happens that Paul is going to address just such a challenge in, in the closing chapters. There's people that will do that. It's important for Paul, I think it's important for us as well that we be able to defend ourselves against just such accusations. You know, I, I said earlier, we live in a fallen world, right? We, we just do. We're, we're humans. We're born into sin. We're born with a sinful nature within us. So these safeguards, they can, they can aid us partly in our battle against temptation to sin, but also if we are ever falsely accused, Right, so as individuals, it can aid us as, as an organization, as a, as a church body. The, the, these safeguards can aid us in that as well. So it, it, it keeps us free from blame, or it keeps blame from sticking to us, if you want to say it that way. The, the second reason Paul gives for these protocols, and, and if this was the only one, I think this one's enough. Paul says, we ought to do what is honorable in the Lord's sight. We ought to do what's honorable in the Lord's sight. We bring glory to God through our integrity in financial matters. We just do. We, and, and we will stand before God one day to give an account for our lives. And how we handle financial matters, I think, is, is part of that. We will give an account before God. And you think about it, I mean... What, is it, what does it say, what, what message does it say to God when we act deceitfully and steal money that's not ours? The Bible makes it clear that God is the creator, he's the, the owner of all things. The Bible makes it clear that we are stewards, 
God blesses us with things and it is up to us to be his steward of those things. What would it say to God if we were to steal in order to supplement what God has given to us? And what kind of message gets, gets uh, proclaimed there? Doesn't that show a lack of trust in God? God, you didn't give me enough. I've got to go take some for myself from somewhere else. Uh, doesn't it show that we're not content with God? Not content with what God has done in our lives? Uh, the verses Larry read earlier talked about, Paul wrote there about being content. Doesn't it show that we don't trust God? We don't trust him to be able to meet our every need, and so I've got to go out and be deceitful and steal from another place. Uh, I have to put my trust in myself rather than, than uh, letting my trust be in God. You know, the, the leaders of all these uh, Christian organizations over the years who, who have been found to be acting dishonestly, they had to stand before a human judge and, and they gave an account of their actions before a human judge. But that situation probably pales in comparison to them standing before God, giving an account in that setting. And I mean, there's forgiveness, right? There's forgiveness in Jesus for those actions. There's redemption in Jesus for those individuals. But there will still be that moment, standing before God, giving an account for how a person has lived their life. We'll be there one day. And so, you know, I'd say just as the leaders of, of groups must give an account for uh, the handling of finances, individually we're going to be there as well. You know, what's God going to say as I stand before him regarding my financial integrity? Am, 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 I, am I doing things in ways that are honorable in the Lord's sight, as Paul phrased it here? So Paul aims to be honorable in the Lord's sight, but he says not only in the Lord's sight. He also wanted to do what was honorable in the sight of man. So yes, he was concerned about what God thought of his financial practices, but, but he was concerned about what other people thought as well, which kind of seems crazy at, at first when you think about it. I mean, isn't this the same Paul who was beaten and stoned and rejected because of his proclamation of the gospel? And isn't this the same Paul who pressed on and continued anyway? In some ways, you could say Paul doesn't care at all what people think about him. He's going to proclaim the gospel no matter what kind of threats are made. Why does it seem like all of a sudden he cares about what people think? I think Paul did what was honorable financially in the sight of men because he didn't want anything to detract from the gospel message. He didn't want anything to get in the way of the truth that he was proclaiming. And what would it say about the gospel if the person proclaiming the gospel to a group of people was later found to have been dishonest in the handling of money? What's that say about the gospel message at that point? What kind of testimony would, would our church or any church have if, if it was found to be dishonest in the handling of money? What kind of testimony would we have individually regarding the gospel if we are found to be dishonest in the handling of money? I, we ought to do what's honorable in the sight of God, but we also ought to do what's honorable in the sight of men so that nothing hinders that gospel proclamation. I think Paul makes that very evident in his words here. 
so, so he spells out the protocols that are in place. He, he gives us the reasons that those are in place. And then you get to verse 24, and, and, and Paul urges the church to give. He says, look, you, you, know, you can give in confidence. You know, prove, prove your love. You know, prove the boasting that I've made about you. Do so in a confident way. You know, really, there's, there's nothing else externally that, that ought to stop the Corinthians from, from giving in this offering that he's taking up. Everything had been put in place to ensure that it would be handled properly. They could move forward with confidence. Um, you know, I hope from a church standpoint that there's that same confidence uh, in the protocols we have in place. I hope all of us feel that confidence. If not, please come talk to me or any of the elders. We, we want to make sure that that confidence, especially in regard to financial integrity, is there. We want to make sure of that. And I think when it comes to us individually handling uh, um, finances as well, I, you know, I think that as we are being honorable before God, as we are being honorable before men, we can move forward in confidence. I think there's a freedom that comes in that. I mean, imagine how stressful it must be to, to keep two sets of books, right? To have, you know, what you show everybody, but then I'm trying to work things over here so that I'm, so that I'm benefiting my, I mean, imagine the, the, the stress that must come with that. When we, when we live with integrity, we can move forward in confidence. We don't have to worry about, about that stress. We don't have to worry about the IRS knocking on our door because of, you know, illegal activities that we are participating in. We don't have to worry about false accusations because the blame just isn't going to stick to us. We don't have to dread the day that we stand before God to give an account because we will have lived with integrity. There's such freedom that comes in that. The Bible speaks plainly about the dangers of money. Um, Money in and of itself is not evil. It's just a thing. It's not evil in and of itself. But when fallen humans are faced with temptation in regard to money, it, it can become a, a major, major stumbling block in our lives. Um, so why it's so important that our handling of money, our giving to those in need, be done in a wise fashion. So important. We, we, we seek to do that here at EBC, and, and you ought to expect nothing less from us. Um, any, any other organization to which you and I give ought to seek to do that as well. And we ought to expect nothing less of them. And, and as individuals, you and I ought to be doing that individually as well. Walking in wisdom here. God expects nothing less of us. And we ought not expect anything less of ourselves either. You know, I think, I think the goal... I think the goal in all things financial is to be able to say what Paul said, especially in verse 21, that we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but in the sight of men as well. If we can say that at the end, the number in the bank account does not matter. That's what matters, having walked honorably. That we do that individually and that we... we we require the organizations that we participate with to walk in that way as well. It takes extra work, that's for sure, but it's worth it when honor is given, especially when God is glorified through that. 
Would you stand with me? Hopefully we are ready to worship now in response to that. God, as we come before you, I, I think first and foremost we have to thank you for, for what you do give to us in our life. We know we're stewards. God, we know it's all yours. We can be tempted. I know I can be tempted at times to, to not think that way, think it's my own and I can do whatever I want, but, but it's yours, God. So would you, would you lead us to be these wise stewards that you call us to be? God, we want to live in an honorable way. We want to do that individually. We want to do that as a church body. God, lead us as well to organizations that are doing that. God, we know that, uh, that there's temptation that comes, especially in the area of money. Would you protect us, God? Would you give us wisdom to set up the safeguards that are necessary to, uh, to fight against those temptations? We don't want anything to hinder our gospel message. Quite the opposite. We want that message to go forth. We want it to shine brightly. And so God, may, may our handling of finances be supportive of that. May it not detract from the love, from your love that we proclaim. God, we give you praise this morning. We thank you. For who you are, we thank you for how you are at work within us. And so because of that, we come to you now and continue to offer you our praise. And it's in your precious name we pray. Amen.